This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Hey, welcome to Business Made Personal. Mr. David Weiner is well known in insurance circles, having been in the industry for over 45 years. David spent 20 of those years at OAMPS, 14 years as a director, and seven years as the organization's chief operating officer. He was also a director of the National Insurance Brokers Association for 12 years and was its chairman and president in 2012 and 2013. During those two years, he was instrumental in developing and implementing the first insurance broking code of practice, to which every NEBA member now subscribes. David has also been involved in a number of successful startups, the most recent being Australia's only franchised insurance broking model. He is a well-recognised identity in the insurance industry and has spoken at many insurance industry events with a focus on education, professionalism and client satisfaction. So, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Uh, David Weiner, man of international mystery. Perhaps we might just start off, mate, just uh, give us a little bit of background in terms of uh, what you've done from a business perspective. From a business perspective, I've mainly been in the insurance industry all my working life. Uh, Like many others who ended up in broking, I started off in underwriting. So, worked for a major insurer in Sydney. Uh, an insurer that's not around anymore. There's a whole lot of them that aren't around anymore, and they're not, nothing but distant memories these days. But it was called the Royal Insurance Company, which was later taken over by Sun Alliance, which then became Vero and Suncorp and all sorts of things. But it was a great old traditional insurer, uh, very much um, a, I suppose, an establishment insurer, you could say, uh, very English. Uh, very proper. Everybody called everybody else Mister. You didn't have a first name, <laughs> um, and uh, and and you were in a in an organisation where you definitely worked your way up through the ranks. And where a lot of people there that I saw that I observed when I first started had been there for a very very long time. So once you started at a business or a company like the Royal an Establishment Company you basically had a job for life. That's before all of the mergers and acquisitions started coming into the market and then the whole world changed. So I sort of came in at the tail end of that. And and so you and I know each other from your days at OAMPS. Yes. Very, very different to what you were doing, I would imagine, at Royal & Son. Yes, absolutely. Look, at at Royal & Son, I did work my way up the ranks a little bit. Uh, So um, I got some good underwriting experience and then I got some good claims experience. And then I got some good reinsurance experience, which not a lot of people actually get the opportunity to work in that field. But the funny, the funny thing is that I was chosen to work in the reinsurance department because I had very neat handwriting. Oh, there you go. In those days, you in the, at the Royal, you wrote with an ink pen in a big, long register all of the reinsurance um, placements. And um, I got chosen because I could write neatly. I learned a bit about reinsurance and, and understood it, and um, it became um, a very interesting part of my role. And 
Moving on from that, like all young, ambitious people, I suppose I decided I wanted to be a broker because they had the flash cars, the nice suits, the nice houses and the kids in private school. I thought, well, maybe I could have a go at doing that. Uh, And I was offered a job just out of the blue by an old colleague from the Royal um, who offered me a job that actually doubled my salary. And I thought, how can I say no? Even if I hate it, I'll do it because I'm going to earn a lot of money. And I remember it was $30,000 back in those days, and that was a hell of a lot of money to earn. Absolutely. Darn it. So I went off and I became a broker at a, um, a little brokerage house in Paddington in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and um, I learned a hell of a lot there. I, I worked in an area which dealt with associations and industry groups, and I learned a lot about product development and about customer service. Um, And I also learned a lot about um, public speaking and how important it was to be able to get up in front of a group or in front of a crowd and communicate your message. And I think a lot of people are scared of doing that. I was forced into it and I was very, very glad I was forced into it because it's been something that I've enjoyed doing all of the rest of my working life. And it's something that I think has probably set me apart a little bit from others that I'm not scared to get up in front of a crowd and talk to them about what I'm passionate about. So moving on from that in Sydney, I was offered a secondment to Melbourne with the same organisation, came to Melbourne with my family. It was only meant to be for six months, but my family absolutely loved it and said, we don't want to go home again. It's much better here. And just at that time, uh, that business was taken over by OAMPS, and that's how I ended up at OAMPS, Mark. So I was there for, for 21 years. And, um, and really, really enjoyed that part of my career. Um, I worked my way up um, at, the, at the end of my time at OAMPS. I was the Chief Operating Officer, so we had over 700 employees and our annual broking income was over $100 million. And um, we had 27 branches and um, I, I just really enjoyed the environment, the people, challenges and and I think one of the things at OAMPS was that because I was there for such a long time, I was there for over 20 years, I worked through all sorts of different iterations of the business as it grew and it was just a great experience because people used to say to me, how can you sit in the same job for 20 years and not get bored? Well, I didn't sit in the same job. I worked in the same organisation but I had a lot of different jobs. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, So just thinking back on some of those times, Excluding what you're currently doing, what you know, you mentioned you had a, a lot of different roles in even in the one organization. If you had to pinpoint one particular role that you loved doing, thinking back over your career, what would you say that would have been? Well, funnily enough, very early on in my career, um, when I was still working in Sydney, I loved working in claims. Um, you're a very sick man, David. I am. And and the reason that I didn't keep working in claims was because in those days, again, I had a I had a family very young. I've got I had four young children um, very early on. And people that worked in claims were poor cousins. Claims people weren't recognized. They didn't get paid good money. They didn't get good opportunities to um, climb the corporate ladder. And they weren't considered for things. They weren't considered for just really basic things like training. And advancement and and additional education, they just sat in a corner and wrote checks. People mm. thought there was nothing to it, but there was a lot to it. And I and I loved it. I, I went out and and did assessing for a while as well. It gave me the opportunity to do that. So claims was good, but 
in more recent times, I suppose when you say recent times in the last 25 or 30 years, I really enjoyed my time at OANTS with, with uh, mergers and acquisitions. I love that part of the business. I also continued all through my career to love working with associations and groups. So, so just going back to the claims piece, do you think anything has changed these days, mate? Oh, God, it's changed massively, Mark, massively. Mm-hmm. Um, claims people now are paid really well. Um, they're respected in the industry if they're, if they're good at what they do. Um, and they're in high demand. They can command really good salaries and great positions. And I, I think that's one of the great things about the last 20 or 30 years in our industry is that claims people have finally been recognised as a very, very important part. In fact, probably the most critical part of mm. insurance process where, where clients get to test the, the strength and the relevance of the money they're spending in making sure that they're properly insured. Yeah, it's where the rubber hits the road, right? It is, it is. It always has been, and, and I'm really glad that things have turned full circle now. So, so thinking back thinking back to what you've experienced, did you have any one person or did you have a mentor that you gravitated towards during those years that gave you information or advice that you felt was absolutely invaluable? I had, I had two throughout my career and I think it I think it would be very hard for someone to say when they've been in a particular industry like I have and like you have for more than 40 years you've just had one mentor because more than 40 years that mentor would probably be dead from old age so (laughs) you you've got to look at at people who are relevant at particular points of, of your career and who are pivotal in giving you advice that set you on the right path. So I, I had two. I had one very early on, again, when I was at the Royal, um, a, a fellow who wasn't that much older than me but advanced really significantly within the business, and he gave me a lot of good advice on how to conduct myself, how to approach situations and how to deal with stress and pressure, which is really, really important. Secondly, I had I had a very, very good mentor at OAMPS who I respected very highly and still do respect very highly, who gave me a lot of good personal advice and a lot of good career advice that helped me put together the bigger picture of what I wanted to do. And um, and he was always there for me, you know, no matter what my issue was or what my problem was, he was a level-headed very sensible, very successful individual who was very generous with his time and I'll always be grateful for that. Yeah. So, so you mentioned dealing with the stress um, and, and, you know, right now we're going through a lot of stress. What, what lessons did you learn during those earlier days that you've taken in? There's a couple of key lessons, Mark. One, one is don't take it personally. If something goes wrong, you can't take it personally. If someone is upset with a process or situation and they lash out, I mean, we're all human beings. You know, there's there's one common denominator. We all have emotions. We all have needs. Um, we all have goals and aspirations and all of those sorts of things. Um, and we all have a, a preferred outcome in any particular situation, I suppose you could say. Mm. So if people get upset, if people get emotional, if people start to point fingers and play the blame game, that just that just doesn't work. What you've got to do is you've got to placate people, calm people down, logically and clearly assess the situation. And then, then another good of, bit of really good advice I got was to always sleep on it. 
don't mm. and fix it straight away. Everyone thinks that time is absolutely critical, but the day or two days, that's not critical. Um, um, look, um, unless something absolutely horrific and monumental is going to happen, one or two days is enough time to give yourself to think the situation through and come up with a solution. And, and one of the things I've really been pleased with, I suppose, throughout my career is that I've really been able to come up with solutions to situations. There hasn't been a situation that I would say in my career that has really been insurmountable. I was actually going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you, what was the most challenging time in your career? Um, look, the most challenging time, and, and what, it was a time that I, that I, that I worked through, but I, look, I was stressed more than I normally would have been. But it was probably the, the end of an era for me. It was sort of a watershed period for me where I'd worked at, at OAMPS for a long time and I'd enjoyed it. I enjoyed the camaraderie. There were a lot of people there that had been for a long time had been there for a long time for you know 15 20 years plus and the business was going ahead in leaps and bounds and that's an indication of a really good culture and a really good business and and I I loved that I loved working with all those people and I loved being successful in that business the business was so successful that unfortunately it was taken over by a much much larger business and that's where the challenges began because what that business wanted to do was reset the agenda and that business had had no experience no previous experience in the industry in the insurance industry and wanted to do things in a completely different way that was foreign to me and frankly um i knew that it wouldn't it wouldn't work Mm. it was challenging because their strategy in getting the loyalty of the people to continue on in the business was fractured in my view Mm-hmm. Uh, what they did was they took the executive team aside one by one and when they took me aside, they offered me a contract to stay on as Chief Operating Officer. I was I was happy to do so. I signed on for a three-year contract. But my question to them was, what's happening with everybody else? And they said, they're all having a chat at the same time, so, you know, everything will be okay. I realised that everybody else bar me had been asked to leave. Oh, right. So... It was a really difficult situation. From a personal perspective, I felt as though I'd let a lot of people down by not saying that I would go because I wasn't really given that option. I was sort of in the headspace where I thought everything was going to continue on, that they needed us. Um, And that was sort of the beginning of probably the most disappointing, miserable probably isn't a good word, I stayed on for the full three years, and I and I did I did my best in a difficult, very very difficult environment. But on the day mm. the contract expired, I resigned. So, so was that the most challenging part of your career? Yeah, it was challenging because I had a huge amount of, I suppose that's not not sentiment isn't the right word, but I had a huge amount of respect for the business that we built, and for the clients and the other stakeholders that we dealt with, and. I wanted to make sure that everybody continued to have a good experience. Mm. Look, it wasn't to be. And and look, it's probably just me, Mark. It's probably just me saying this is the way I would have done it. And I'm not saying I would have done it right. I'm just saying I wouldn't have done it the way that it was done. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously it sounds to me like you're a particularly loyal person and that loyalty, uh, you know, would have been an important factor, I would imagine. It was. It was. And I felt felt I'd I'd been let down. 
But look, having said that, that all that particular organisation is is a wonderful organisation. It's hugely successful. It's very diverse, um, and it's you know very rewarding to to shareholders. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in that organisation that absolutely love working there. It just wasn't the type of organisation that suited me personally. So, is there anything in business you'd do differently if you had your time over, Dave? In business, um, no. I, look, I've loved. The industry. I've loved my career. I suppose look, the highlight of my career was becoming involved with with our industry association. I was a director of of the National Insurance Brokers Association for for twelve years. I was their their president and chairman for two years. I loved my involvement in that space, and I think that really enhanced my career. It gave me the ability to look at the industry as a whole and to talk to a lot of other people involved in the industry, large, small, independent, publicly listed, whatever the types may be, and what their attitude to the market was and what their attitude to the insurance insurance industry and, and careers in insurance were. And I found surprisingly, because I was probably a little bit naive, like a lot of people are when they're, when they're just working in perhaps across their career three or four different jobs in this particular industry, is that there's so many things that we have in common, no matter whether we mm. work large organisation, small organisation, whether we have equity in it, whether we own it, whether our wives and or families or, or husbands or whatever work in it, um, we all have the same basic desires. And, and that is to keep customers happy, mm. keep customers full stop so that you've got the repeat business, but to also do the, do the right thing, to make insurance something that's not, not scary or a necessary evil, but to make it something that's going to help people. And, and I think we all try to do that. It's just sad that we're, we're much maligned because of the few that don't do things the right way. It's like an industry, isn't it, really? Absolutely. It's just ours. Yeah. It's probably more public, right? Yes, it is. If you were starting off today in the insurance industry, what are the sorts of things that you would consider as being of primary importance? Primary importance, well, for for me personally, primary importance is is having a purpose and making a difference. I've always wanted to make a difference. And I think, you know, through my career, I have in in, in some certain ways, I've always been really open to helping other people and to helping to mentor other people. I've always been really, really focused on making sure I give credit where credit's due. Uh, and that's a very important part of of, of my of my makeup. Um, what I what I would have done differently probably Mark has been a little bit um, more hard nosed. Um, and and people say, oh if you are if you are hard nosed then you're not who you are and you're not, you know, you're not David. You're not. You're not likable. You're not approachable. You know. Um, and there's plenty of hard-nosed people in our industry, as as you know. But probably I should have been a little bit more uh, self-aware, and I should have probably pushed for more reward throughout my career. And that's not so great. That's, there's nothing I regret. But you know, on a number of occasions, I was offered equity in businesses and promised that it would come. And I, I worked my my heart out to to make sure those businesses were successful. And and the eventuality never came. And look, a lot of young people now who are coming through the industry have already been indoctrinated. They know that equity is really important. 
it's, it's good to earn a good salary. It's great to put some superannuation away. But if you really want to get ahead in life and if you really want to give your children a really good start, then I think you've got to look at the equity model. And that's why authorised reps are so popular now. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful change in our industry that people can actually get out there without a huge amount of capital behind them and start their very own business. And I, I just think it's fantastic for all the young people out there, and there's older people too that are doing it later in their career, for yeah. all of them that are out there having a go and, and looking after clients, treating them so well and making sure they get what they want and what they expect. And, and on the back of that, a happy coincidence is that they're building a great business and a good asset for themselves. I, I think that's absolutely spectacular, Mark. And if I had my chance again, I would really like to have gone down that path. Unfortunately, my circumstances said no with, with four growing children and lots of commitments that I couldn't take the chance. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, too, it depends on your personality too, David, doesn't it? I mean, if you are more interested in sort of that corporate environment, then you may not necessarily want to go off and do a broking gig. You, you probably want to stay with one of the majors or into an underwriting agency or something like that, I would have thought. Yeah, and look, you, you, you're right there, Mark, too. I was I was very comfortable uh, in a corporate environment. I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I liked how it all, all fitted together. And, um, and, and at the end of the day... I've got to say, I, I have no regrets. I haven't. I have no regrets. I've, I've I've enjoyed it, and I've and I'm very grateful for what the industry has given me, and for the people that I've met along the way and the experiences that I've had. Do you think that the corporate environment today looks after and nurtures its staff? I think that in a lot of organisations, there's a lot of lip service. I think mm. there's a lot of discussion around culture and how important culture is and there's absolutely no doubt that culture is the probably the most important thing in the workplace if you have a bad culture you have a bad business and um i think that a lot of people give lip service to it but there there's again a lot of organizations that are really really good to their employees and i think we've got to be empathetic and we've got to try and understand if people are willing to open up and tell you what their concerns are what their problems are then i think you've got to be prepared to listen and then not only listen, you've got to be prepared to try and help make life easier for them. One of the good things, if there's any good things that have come out of this pandemic, is the fact that people have probably got a better work-life balance than they've ever had before if they are able to work from home. Now, it's probably too much of a good thing and they're probably getting very sick of it by now, but I think it's shown people and it's also shown people, shown employees, but also shown employers that productivity doesn't necessarily go down the drain if someone's working from home. And if it suits people and if it works, then I think it's a great thing. And if you can split the balance between the two, it's great. If you can just work at home, if that's what you want to do, if you can just work in the office, if that's what you want to do, and you're just as productive and, and you're learning and, you, and, and you're feeling fulfilled, then why shouldn't you be able to do it? So let me take you back to one comment that you made, which I think you said something along the lines of you'd wish you'd been more hard-nosed mm. uh, when you were looking at arranging things. One of the things that I have found is that when you're when you're not in a position of control, it's it's quite difficult to be hard-nosed because you don't want to upset the apple cart. So have you got any tips in terms of how to go about being a little bit hard-nosed and looking after yourself 
even though you may not necessarily be in that sort of position of power, as it were. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I, one occasion I, I, I recall when when the chairman came to me and he said to me, David, he said, you, you're great in your job. We, lo- we, we love you working here. Everybody respects you. You know, you, you know what you're talking about. You're not going to go all the way because you haven't got enough, can I say, said you haven't got enough bastard in you. Yep. And that's my personality. Um, and as you said before, I suppose if I was like that, I wouldn't be me. But having said that, I think what you've got to do is you've got to approach it, not subtly, but you've got to p- approach it, if it's the right term, politely, mm. got to talk about what you're prepared to do and what you're prepared to give and then talk about what you think an appropriate reward for that might be. And what I've always found is when people do um, emotively uh, decide that they're just not getting not getting rewarded appropriately and want to spit the dummy and say, I'm going to go and find another job, invariably within six months, 12 months, they've left that other job and they're floating around the market. The happy place could have been exactly where they were to start with if they'd applied themselves and, and, and listened to what was, what was needed. So it's a, it's a sort of a two-way communication, I suppose, but in a very polite and respectful way. Following on from that then, what do you think about having a career plan and career goals as opposed to being a little more, let's call it fluid? I, I think fluidity is a good thing. I think that ultimately you should have something in your mind that says this is where I where I want to be. Now, there's a lot of people that, that don't want to be anywhere in particular and are happy to go along for the ride and come what may, whatever's around the corner, another opportunity, and that's fine. And, and to a certain extent, that sort of happened with me and I've, I've liked the idea of, of facing an unknown challenge. I think you can plan things out to the nth degree, but you can also be disappointed to the nth degree too because things don't always work out the way that you think they're going to work out and different opportunities and different obstacles will, will, will present themselves and you have to work out how to navigate those. Mm. I think an ultimate degree plan is great. But it's got to be something that's very, very, I think, broad. It's got to be, I want to be successful in the industry. I want people to um, understand that I've made a good contribution. I want people to respect me. Uh, I want to be included in important decisions or in uh, or consulted about things that are happening in the industry. Uh, so it's it's more a goal like that than a goal saying, I want to be chairman of a publicly listed company turning over, you know, $400 million a year and I want to, you know, drive a Mercedes Benz and live in a house in Darling Point. That mm. They're not goals to me. No. What sort of life lessons have you learned that you, you know, in terms of what would be game changers uh, for you if you if you knew then what you know now? Apart from saving my money and buying shares in certain businesses or remembering lotto numbers or Melbourne Cup winners, <laughs> answer. Um, what would have been game changers? I think going back to an answer that I gave previously is if I'd have had the, had the courage, I suppose, had the courage enough at the time to take a leap of faith and look at getting equity in something like giving up something. You know, I, I do remember a, a point in time where, I was offered a really good opportunity in a business, but it meant that I would have had to sell my house and put 
money into that business. So that became a highly successful business. And I, you know, I would have you know, had enough money that I couldn't have spent in five lifetimes. Yeah. At the time, I had four children. I had a house. I had a wife. I had commitments. Um, and I didn't want to sell my house. It was security. But I think these days to get equity in a business is much easier than it used to be when we were young. When we were young, you had to have cash up front. And nowadays, there's plenty of really good businesses that if they recognise talent, they'll, they'll give you the seed capital to start your business and they'll help you and they'll nurture you and they'll want you to be successful because if you're successful, they'll be successful. Those opportunities now are just absolutely fantastic. When we were, we were growing through our career, particularly early on, it was you got, a, you got a paycheck, you paid your mortgage, you fed your family, and as far as you were concerned, you were successful. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but when I left school, you know, I had two choices. My mum wanted me to either join one of the armed services or join a bank. And, uh, you know, insurance insurance in those days, I don't know how you felt, but it, it really wasn't even a career. You know, isn't it funny you say that because my mum my passed away when I was very young, but my dad said to me, if you're going to get a job and you've got to support a family, you've got to work in the bank, you've got to go and work for the public service, or you've got to work in the insurance industry. He said, because those three things will always be around. There'll always be security in those three things. And he wasn't far wrong. I mean, the banks are still going strong. The public service is never going to go anywhere. And insurance is still a great industry to be in, but it's a well-kept secret. Oh, 100%. You know, younger and, and people, it's a well-kept secret, but there's so many opportunities for younger people in the insurance industry. A final question to you, David Weiner. Uh, so where do you see is the future of where we're going as a, as a profession? Well, I think, Mark, there's going to be some reversion, actually. I mean, you know, we've gone through the, the decades of mergers and acquisitions and, and rationalisation and all of those sorts of things in our industry, and we've, we've seen it all. I think between you and me, nothing would surprise us now in that particular space. I think that there's going to be some reversion because I think people are getting sick of not having the proper personalised contact that they used to have with an insurance broker or an insurance underwriter in the olden days. And I think people have learnt a lot of lessons through that. And we've we've learnt a lot of lessons through natural disasters where people have bought products online where the product's a bit cheaper um, and it's easier and um, and providers really great at advertising their products. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And they always say, make sure the product's suitable. You know, if you're not an insurance industry person, how do you know the product's suitable if no one gives you any advice? So I suppose I'm I'm I'm, I'm waving the insurance broker's banner, but I've seen, particularly in the last three, maybe four years, a lot of brokers going back and saying, I don't want to work in a business where I'm just pressing a couple of buttons on a computer and getting a price and saying, this is it, take it or leave it. I think mm. there's... I want to deal with a client. I want to understand them. I want to get to know them. I want to understand what their exposures are. I want to make sure that if the worst possible scenario eventuates, that they're going to come to me and thank me and say, thank God I got your advice and I'm going to be okay. Mm. And this is where, again, all of these authorised representatives are absolutely booming because they're, they're respecting their clients, they're treating them like gold and they're making sure that there's not going to be a problem because it's their business. The buck stop with them. Yeah. Making sure their clients have the best information, the best product options, the best 
um, education on what they should be doing and putting that in, in place for them. So I can see there's going to be a step back more towards personalised service, I feel, instead of commoditized one product fits all service. There's also going to be um, a lot of smartening up in the industry. Um, you know, we, we can be very critical of our regulators and we, and we have been in the past, um, but I think they're really starting to shape up now. They're really starting to say we don't want bad operators in the insurance industry. We want to make sure people mm. get what they pay for and make sure people aren't left holding holding the bag and holding a you know bearing a burden that they shouldn't be bearing because they tried to do the right thing. So I think I think regulators will become much more active, and certainly they have overseas. And generally, when they are active overseas and things start to change, they're active in Australia and things start to change eventually too. So I think that you know a lot of bad operators will be drummed out of the business. I think a lot of um, authorised representatives will continue to flourish and there'll be more and more of them moving out into the market. And I think there'll probably be a bit of a, bit of a gap created. There'll be, there'll be all of the experts in the, in, in the corporates that do all the complex, difficult, all of that sort of stuff that, I, look, I can't even begin. I'm not, I'm not a corporate broker by any stretch of the imagination. I can't begin to understand how, how they place those, those hugely complex risks. So there'll always be a spot for them. There'll always be a spot mm. for those in the middle who are providing the advice. Um, but mm. I think there'll be sort of a bit of a gap emerge between the okay. two. Uh, and so businesses that are transitioning from, from medium-sized businesses to large businesses, I think there's going to be an opportunity there for, for someone to jump in and, and snap up that particular segment of the market with a different offering. And I think yeah. that there's going to be uh, a lot of organisations that have good client bases looking at different ways to enhance their client proposition, the proposition that they offer their clients. So ending, mm. I, I can see insurance businesses or insurance broking businesses being part of other businesses like, you know, real estate businesses or accountants or others that are, mm. that are sort of in a, in, in a space where, where, they're, where they're already respected by their clients and they can, they yep. can offer something else and offer another dimension and that mm. other dimension includes some form of insurance product, service or advice model. Yeah, okay. Hey, listen, that's uh, really the end of our time, David. It's been absolutely brilliant hearing a little bit more of your background information. I didn't even know after we've been we've been uh, <laughs> friends for such a long time. Yeah. But is there one last little uh, bit of advice you'd like to give anyone listening to this? And bear in mind, I, I would imagine most people are from the insurance profession. Yeah. Uh, look, I'd like to give some advice, I suppose, to the younger people in the industry. Um, when I when I first started out, particularly in broking, I used to I used to look at people, I used to look at individuals, and say, "Oh, they're smart, and they're so um, they're so switched on, and they know what they're doing, and they're great at making decisions." And oh, if only I could ever be like them. And I always thought to myself, "I'm not smart enough. I'm just not smart enough to be like that." So that's sort of out of reach. But I worked out for myself actually pretty early on that you don't have to be really smart. You only have to put in the effort. So if someone's really smart and they can do a job in seven hours, I'm not so smart, but if I can do the job in nine hours and I'm prepared to put in those extra two hours myself to get the job done, that's what I did. I, in, in my early career, I, I used to start work at 6.30am and finish at 6pm and work every Saturday. I'd go in every Saturday when there was no one in the office 
and I'd catch up on my work and mm. always kept up. So what I'd, what I'd say to, to particularly younger people is don't think that because you don't think you're the smartest person in the organisation, you can't be the most successful person in the organisation. All you have to do is apply yourself, put in the time, and you will learn on the job and it'll get easier and easier and easier as the years go by. Hey, great advice, David. And thank you again for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's been great joining you. Thank you. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera, and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.